Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to the Serial Killer Podcast, the podcast dedicated to serial killers, who they were, what they did, and how. I am your Norwegian host, Thomas Baborg Thun. Welcome, dear listener, to the next installment in the Zodiac series. If you haven't listened to part one, please do so now. It's important to know the main facts about the Zodiac Killer before listening to this and later episodes in the series. As an added bonus, the lovely introduction music you just listened to is now available. Go to theserialkillerpodcast.com to download this exclusive ringtone now, and you won't regret it. Also, do not miss out on exciting news, such as the Kickstarter project we got going with the premium mug that changes color as it heats up. So, sign up at theserialkillerpodcast.com slash tellme. Your support means a lot to me, and I hope to continue to bring you high-quality content for a long time to come. If you would like to donate, please go to theserialkillerpodcast.com slash donate. Or simply go to patreon.com slash the serial killer podcast directly. If you're unable to contribute, then you can still help out by telling your friends and family about your favorite podcast and helping us grow. The larger our fan base gets, the more stable this program becomes, and the more resources I'll be able to devote to it in the future. As mentioned in episode one, this podcast series on the Zodiac Killer will devote time to explore theories relating to who Zodiac really was. There are many, many theories 
as to who might be the notorious and enigmatic murderer. But I have to say one of the most researched and well-documented is the case against Ed Edwards. I have been fortunate enough to be contacted by Paramount Network, as they have an excellent true crime documentary series called It Was Him, The Many Murders of Ed Edwards, that premiered on the 16th of April this year. I have had the pleasure of watching all six episodes devoted to solving how many murders Ed Edwards actually was responsible for. During the documentary series, we follow a unique individual that is intimately connected to the Edwards case, none other than his grandson, Wayne Wolfe. He teams up with retired police detective John Cameron in his hunt for the truth, and together they reveal to the viewer a dark tale of what might be America's most prolific and ingenious serial killer. And now, dear listener, a true treat for you. With me tonight, I have none other than the grandson of Ed Edwards himself, namely Wayne Wolf. Welcome so much to the show, Wayne. I appreciate you coming on. Where are you now, and how are you? Well, I appreciate you having me on your show. I'm currently uh, sitting in my apartment in California, and... uh I suppose it's been an alright day so far. That's good to know. Now, before we get into the juicy meat of this interview, I think it's important for my listeners to know exactly who I am talking to. So, Wayne, can you tell me a bit about yourself, your background, your relationship with Ed Edwards, and how this documentary series came to be? And please, do feel free to elaborate and take your time. Well, thank you. So, like you said, my name is Wayne Wolf, and I am the uh, grandchild of Edward Wayne Edwards. The uh, the way that this series came to be is, no matter how many times I I talk to people about this, it's, it's always not a normal story. <laughs> it really just comes down to, uh, I want to say, the, the full uh, detailed story here is that, you know, everyone that does some form of genealogy research at some point in their life, I would think, you know, out of curiosity. And uh, for mine, I've always had interesting uh, things in my family as far as I knew. So I was doing genealogy research for my mother because she wanted to know more about her father because he was a, uh, a very interesting, you know, figure himself. He actually has uh, characters based off of him and his twin brother and both of the Untouchable movies. And because uh, he was a very key figure with uh, Al Capone and the uh, smuggling of alcohol and diamonds into the country. So my mother wanted to know more about her past, thinking, well, I, she most likely would have some kind of extra siblings or cousins or someone. Because my grandfather, Julius, and his twin brother, Wilbur, they're actually born and raised at a bordello in Chicago. So thinking about that, you would think they probably have a different set of morals or at least one with a little extra in it. While I was doing this, uh, my father called me and asked me how I was doing and you know, asked me what I was up to. And I was literally doing the research at the moment. And I thought it was pretty fascinating because it is a very fascinating subject. 
And um, my father is a very smart man. But when it comes to the, some of the capabilities of the Internet, he was not aware of the ability to do research like that, you know, without some kind of like pro- professional help, you know. And uh, I told him I was doing this research and he said, oh, man, that, buddy, you should look into my dad then because I've always kind of I've always wanted to know, you know, more about him. He didn't want to know more in the sense of like, uh, like I need to know this, or like what kind of a family am I, am I from, or anything. Because my father was raised by his birth mother, with the assistance of a wonderful man named Clarence Wolf, Chuck Wolf, Grandpa Chuck. And uh, I said, okay, sweet. Well, well, what is your dad's you know full name? And and I thought that was a weird question to even ask. It's like I've never even thought to ask what is my grandfather's name because you know it's that's how infrequently the subject was brought up. And uh, he said, well, his name was Edward Wayne Edwards, I think. I said, okay. Well, that is certainly an interesting name, and I'll get back to you, buddy. So I started doing my research and you know, going through different websites that do uh, genealogy. I couldn't really find anything linked to my grandmother with that name. So it was kind of strange. And, and then all of a sudden, I found the marriage certificate filing for Idaho when uh, she was married to him. But the name that was on it wasn't Edward Wayne Edwards. It was James Garfield Langley. And I was extremely confused. I'm like, well, obviously there's some kind of mistake here because that's absolutely not the same name. So after that dead end happened, I just said, you know what? I'm just going to Google his name. And at least for me, probably because I've looked it up so many times, when you, uh, you know, do a web search, for the name Edward Wayne Edwards, the very first result is a Wikipedia page that had, it says Edward Edwards serial killer right at the top. And uh, no joke, my initial reaction because you know me and my dad, you know, I'm, I'm, we're jokers and you know we'll mess with each other, just like you know poke up fun and all that kind of stuff. I thought, you know what, <laughs> I'm gonna call my dad, and be like, oh hey look, I found your dad. He was a serial killer, ha <laughs> ha, you know. And uh, I was like, this is great. He even kind of looks like my dad. And then, oh awesome. This is even better. He even actually lives in the, he was from the same small town and has the exact same birth date and year. And oh my God, like it, it just, it hit me. And I didn't know what to think because it's like I was, I was like, was I just playing a prank on myself? <laughs> like I just, I just tricked myself. And um, because that's not something that you discover, that's not something that anyone really discovers. I mean, you could find some interesting stuff out, but just the situation of stumbling upon the listing for my grandfather's, you know, life on Wikipedia. And when I tell people about my grandfather being a serial killer, I can kind of prepare him for it. But I wasn't prepared for that. And uh, I couldn't just call my dad and be like, hey, so I think your dad was a serial killer, but let me call you back. You know, it's not quite something that's going to, I just didn't feel right doing that. (laughs) So I'm looking around this page and I see uh, at this point in discovering this, the Edward Edwards Wikipedia page did not have many details. There's a a listing for a book and uh, it was extremely confusing to see one listing under the reference for something like this. And See, it's me, Edward Wayne Edwards, the serial killer you never heard of. And I immediately said, okay, if I'm going to find out any details or anything to really confirm that Ed Edwards was my grandfather, I suppose the man who wrote the book on him 
would probably have an answer for me on that. And uh, I went to the author's website, Sothan and John Cameron, who is a uh, retired detective from Great Falls, Montana. And uh, it was a very conspiratorial book. I uh, I saw everything on the website, and you know, as I would assume a lot of people do, there's some dismissive things with that. You know, dismissive thoughts of like, okay, well, this is this is a lot of names. This is a lot of big names in here. So I mean, something can't quite add up. So I tracked down his uh, his contact information because I'm a big nerd. <laughs> I tracked it down and. Uh, I figured right before I called him, I thought, okay, but wait a minute. If I could track down this info, you know, someone else probably can. Some, like, internet sleuths, people that have theories on, you know, Ed. And uh, he probably has a lot of messages for people, you know. And mine would probably be a very weird one to leave. So I thought, I'm just going to leave a nice, short, sweet message. So I said, uh, hi, Mr. Cameron, this is Wayne Wolf, And I believe that Ed Edwards may have been my grandfather. So if you could please call me back. And I left him my number. That was it. I didn't put anything else in the message or anything, and then this went back about my business. And then the next day, I had a missed phone call while I was uh, having lunch, and it was from uh, Mr. John Cameron. And uh, the voicemail is something that it's sort of like the situation of like, oh, I was by myself when I discovered my grandfather's a serial killer. I didn't really have anything to. Then I just wanted to be a sounding board, and then. He left me this voicemail and says, hi, Wayne Wolf, I know exactly who you are because I interviewed your grandmother, Jeanette, from my book. And she requested that either I don't reach out to you or your father, but now that I know, you know, I can call him back. And so I'm um, just finishing a bologna sandwich and listening to this voicemail of uh, that double confirmation that Ed Edwards was my grandfather. Because I never said anything about anything. I didn't give any details on my grandmother. I didn't say Jeanette. Jeanette. And this, that's not a name you can just pick out of the air. At that point, I'm just sitting by myself with a, I guess, a variation of a Wikipedia page with another very, another uh, verification that it was my grandfather. And I called John Cameron back. We spoke, and he started to break out these details for me on, on Ed. And you know, it's it's heartbreaking to hear that kind of thing. It's uh, I don't I don't think anyone. At least anyone that is what normal would like to have a grandfather like this. I mean, who would like to be in a position like this? And there are theories of John's that I didn't quite understand or or really believe. I was thinking about the, the victims of Ed, you know, the people that he, he was convicted for. And I felt so terrible because I would see online that people would, uh, they would really... I don't want to say poke fun, but they wouldn't take Ed seriously as a killer. And not as a respect that he deserves, but as a respect for the people that he, he killed and their families. You know, I didn't want those people to really fall into this, you know, obscure mad magazine of a character that Ed was and, and just be a side note. And I mean, they were people that he hurt and he destroyed lives. And they deserved respect. So my initial thought was I would like to try to make something that could, one, document this because I recognize how rare of a situation this was. I mean, it's not every day that someone finds this kind of thing out. And, you know, I'm a filmmaker. I mean, that's why I lived in California. And 
I, I just had to document it. And two, if I had the chance to have the, the resources to go through and research some of this stuff, you know, with the, the help of a, a film company like uh, Viacom Paramount Network, then it would give me the chance to shoot down some of the, at least some of them, so that way people could start to see, okay, well, wow, this is actually serious. This is a, a serious, sick man, and these poor people were hurt by this man. And, you know, I just wanted to sort of reframe it from people, or for people. And, uh, you know, as you know, because you, you've seen all six episodes of the show, we we dug into this life, this Forrest Gumpian life this, this man had, ranging from being in jail at the age of 17 and being the leader of a prison gang with Charles Manson at the age of 12, up to hanging out with Jimmy Hoffa and Anthony Provenzano. And it's this, there's so many things about this. It's this, this scream, what, this is real. You know, it's, there's so many things about this where I, I have to like state, and we have paperwork on this, or like, and look at this, like you have to show people these pieces of evidence of just how strange of a life this man was. So it's, it's, it's very interesting, but I'm uh, sorry to ramble, but you know, I understand that it's not a normal situation. So I no longer have a normal life. Thank you so much for that detailed introduction to um, your background and uh, how uh, this excellent documentary series came to be. You're welcome. Well, when I watched the first episode, I was very interested to see the scene where you follow John Cameron down into his cellar and seeing his collection of papers and artifacts connected to Ed Edwards. It was very much like from a movie where the protagonist meets some conspiracy genius that has a corkboard filled with papers with string connecting them. So uh, I have to ask you, um, you told me about your phone call with John Cameron, but can you tell me about your first meeting with him? Yeah. So my first meeting with John Cameron is, it's it's something that would be, I don't know, uh, think of it as like a meeting a long lost relative, just because I, I hear about this man and that he I speak to him on the phone, and, and it's like discovering you have this long-list family member, and then you get to finally meet him. You don't know really what to say because he knows so much about you. You know, in this situation, John Cameron, you know, he's a very dedicated you know, private citizen for you know researching this kind of thing now, and and uh, he was excited. He was really excited to meet me, and I could understand that, but it was overwhelming. You know, because I want to say with 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 uh, someone like John, who has had so many years and blood, sweat, and tears into the investigation of Ed Edwards, to to have any kind of break or any kind of change, and you know the norm, the normal for him, it's going to be exciting. So I was a little off put by how I don't want to say smiley, but just how excited he was to to um have me near him and. He straight out told me, he's like, you know, Wayne, having you here is something that could change things for me because, you know, you can give me a different insight into his mind and you can give me different access into the family, you know, which is it's all true. But it was just, 
it was a, a really interesting experience meeting John because meeting anyone under these circumstances, I suppose, is going to be a strange thing. Definitely very strange, but uh, but also very fruitful. But um, a bit of a side note: Have you listened to my podcast? You know, I funny enough, I've not really been a big true crime podcast person. I've never really been a big true crime person in general. I mean, I find some of it fascinating, but I have not because I don't want to have any. Uh, I thought it'd be fun to have a surprise going into this. I I didn't want to prepare myself for uh, any special hook or uh, interesting thing you have with yours. So I thought it'd be fun to have a nice natural interview. That's perfectly fine. Because I don't ask out of um, self-aggrandizing or anything like that. I ask because if you had listened to my podcast, you would probably know that Usually, I spend a significant amount of time in my exposés on the serial killers that I investigate. I spend a lot of time developing their background, who they were as, as children and as youths. So, because a lot of times the behavior serial killers show as adults stem from their childhood and uh, adolescent years. So before we continue exploring how Ed Edwards might be the Zodiac Killer, can you describe what you know about your grandfather's childhood and youth? Yeah. When it comes to my grandfather's childhood, I suppose I would say I know what he's wanted people to know. Because what I understand is how he has described things as in his own book. And... We didn't have a lot of resources outside of that. So what I, what I know from his, his youth is that you know, he was born in Akron, Ohio. And um, his mom is uh, Lillian, yeah, Lillian Myers. She died of a gunshot wound to her stomach, uh, septicemia, I believe. And then from that, after she died, Ed's family at the time, like you know, cousins, aunts, you know, he had family. No, he was also, he was born Charles Myers. And uh, they dropped him into an orphanage. And But in the process, though, they did change his name. And something that was very strange to me was the fact, you know, this was the late 1930s. And back then, the, the, the idea of having an extra set of hands to work, you know, even if it's a five, six-year-old, that's someone that could help around the house, someone that could help keep everyone alive. I mean, this is a very fragile time in our country. But instead of taking in this poor boy, they, they changed his name and they dropped him into an orphanage. Parmadale. That's the name of the Parmadale Catholic Orphanage. And so I wondered, who would do that? Why would you do this to this poor child, especially family? And my thought of it is, I, I, I think maybe Ed uh, witnessed his mother's death or... With the gunshot wound, I believe, it was a rifle to her stomach. Maybe she didn't. Maybe she she was so sick in her mind because you know of this poor woman raising a child a bastard. You know, in the thir- late thirties, that's it's not necessarily something that you want to have in in our country at that time, or I guess it really any time. But then, particularly, it was uh, very taboo. So obviously, there's some mental health issues there with her decision to to do this, and. 
you know, who knows, maybe he had some, maybe he helped her, or maybe, you know, he's the one that pulled the trigger. I mean, as terrible as it's to say, but I thought, what else would you do with a, a five, six-year-old boy who is so damaged that, you know, I mean, there is no really mental health protection for children, you know, so, you, or what, what would you do with a five or six-year-old murderer? You know, you would, you would change his name and you'd drop him somewhere like Parmadale and forget he existed. And uh, from that point, he was raised in Parmadale until, I believe, around the age of 12, on and off moving between uh, with him uh, in Parmadale there and with uh, his aunt, which is where that would be like his second mother, I believe, at some point. Uh, or at least I thought of it, thought of it as uh, Mary Ethel Edwards. And, uh, but at the age of 12, he decided just to hit the bricks and he started his life of crime. In his own words, you know, he's going to become the greatest criminal uh, to ever live. And I guess from there, that's probably where I would no longer consider him a child. Right. You mentioned in your uh, introduction that Ed Edwards was on a chain gang with Manson. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah. I believe that's one of the details that didn't get too uh, touched upon in the show because I mean, there's so much. Like, as you should know from watching it, there's so many things we'd cram into this uh, the medium we had. But uh, uh, my grandfather, in uh, 1952, he was uh, uh, in Chillicothe, Ohio, Federal Reformatory for Boys, which is a uh, essentially a federalized juvenile hall, that, uh, which those don't really exist, federalized ones at least, in the uh, United States of America anymore. And it was not a very large institution. But they would certainly have um, a hierarchy, and it wouldn't generally by age, where the the children that are in here, they would uh, they'd have their own little like like say if there's like four different parts of it here, then there'd be like four like gangs because you know they'd have their own prison section, and I'm in charge here because I'm the oldest boy, I'm the biggest boy, you know. And my grandfather was a stocky man, and this is when he was 17, and I thought it very interesting that just so happens that at that time also, I believe even actually for the same crime for transporting a vehicle, stolen vehicle across state lines, which is why they went to a federalized place, was a 12-year-old Charles Manson. And I immediately thought, that is such a weird, weird coincidence that we would have someone such as my grandfather as well as someone such as Charles Manson. And... You can't help but wonder the full history between them, even, you know, like, his, you know, he would be a childhood friend to Charlie. Like, he'd be the age of an older brother or mentor. And uh, your imagination can get taken away. Uh, it can go, it can get away from you in situations like this because of just thinking about the impact on the on scale of our, our history that my grandfather has in a small way, as well as, you know, Charles Manson. Indeed. Charles Manson was a very, very charismatic man and uh, always attracted followers or, uh, and made, easily made friends and allies during his whole life because he, was, he had a silver tongue. Well, his whole being was very attractive to, to a lot of people. So the fact that your grandfather knew and uh, maybe even uh, was on very close terms with, with Manson, certainly might have had 
implications on his later life. But as you say, details like that is a very good way to fall down into the rabbit hole. Yeah, it's certainly something that can uh, get away with you. But I knew I do know one thing is generally people such as my grandfather and, and Manson, they have very similar personalities. They are manipulative and they are they're sweet talkers and they are unknowingly masters of mirroring someone's emotion because they didn't they would look at someone and have an experience and they could really they're chameleons and you can't help but think that especially someone like charles manson you know who was the same way personalities tend to gravitate to each other like you can't help but think you know there's like the the weird kids who are just like i'm committing crimes because i'm a bad boy or you know like whatever reason but then there are people like ed and, and charlie and you can't but think that they would see each other and give each other a nod, you know. It's 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 weird. I the way I thought about it with that like imagination running away with you thing is like, what if they did become lifelong friends? And it's like imagining a situation where, you know, it's the late '60s and my grandfather's traveling through, moving to California, and he decides to go get lunch to get catch up with his old friend Charlie. And I wonder if it would be a lunch where it's Ed sitting there across from Charles Manson. And Charles is like, hey, so uh, so what are you up to these days? And that's like, I want to think about writing a book. He's like, oh, interesting. What about you? I was like, oh, I want to think about writing some music. I might be working with the Beach Boys. Oh, interesting. Or if it's like sitting around having coffee and laughing with each other over the, the wool they pulled over the eyes of so many people. You know, like it's a weird thought and it's a weird feeling that I would hope doesn't happen actually in real life. It's the stuff that movies are made of, I think. Now, yeah, truth is definitely stranger than fiction. It's a weird thing to be a living example of that. Indeed. In the documentary, it's often implied that Ed Edwards was very intelligent. Do you agree with this? And if so, what do you base it on? Well, when it comes to uh, the intelligence of Ed Edwards, I do want to say that is something that I would hope should be deni- you know, undeniable. Because look what he got away with for so long. There's the thing is dumb luck. You know, there's like a Mr. Magoo type luck. You know, where you're just sort of walk, blindly pushing through things. But then there's someone who is a boy who was uh, inconsistently raised in an orphanage, you know, in the 30s with a third grader's education. And look what he did with his life. I mean, he, he certainly... Had to have been a, of a higher intelligence, or at least a higher IQ. And uh, I'm trying to think exactly. I want to say it was one. I think, according to the uh, the FBI report, uh, or the the FBI um, most wanted poster, which is interesting. I actually came across it recently. On uh, it was on eBay. And I could send you this this photo if you'd like. It's, it's uh, this original. It's a wanted by the FBI interstate flight robbery. Edward Wayne Edwards is what it says across the top. And in the description is where it would uh, give away his IQ, I believe. It's the description that then went to circulation with newspapers when they were trying to find him. And I do believe it said he had an IQ of 137 or 134 or somewhere in there. Um, I don't know if that was a self-claimed number. Or 
if that's something that the uh, the FBI had more information on. But he, he certainly was a uh, more intelligent man, and, and unfortunately, he had the the right combination, or I should say, the wrong combination of of nature and nurture. I mean, his genetics, you know, his his higher intelligence and his charisma, then mixed in with the situation of the unfortunate upbringing. And uh, one extra thing I, I might add. Um, when it comes to the description that was out to the public when they were looking for him, when he was on the FBI's Tim Was Wanted list. Certain things, you know, I've been learning a lot of details about my 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 family's history through just this research of the show. And uh, one of the things I learned is I I found the, um, the description that I mentioned before. It's on the poster that was sent out to everyone. And uh, they talk about um, scars and marks, you know, things to where they people can hide those, like tattoos. And uh, for the tattoo listings on everything here, one of them is, uh, it says a left-hand scar, inner side of left wrist scar, upper left area, scar, right knee, tattoos. On right upper, or right wrist, Jeanette. And when I read that, that because my grandmother's name, it, it just kind of further broke my heart because I didn't know anyone in my family to have a tattoo for my grandmother before. And, you know, here's someone that's narcissistic and evil manipulative as my, my grandfather here, and he has her name tattooed on his, his right wrist. So that, that was a jarring thing. One of those, it's like, oh, yeah, that's right. This is a real moment, you know, when I'm going through researching. So. Incredible. And, um, 134 in IQ is almost genius level, so uh, at least highly advanced intelligence. It, I wouldn't be surprised if the federal institution he grew up in did an IQ test on him. It's quite common to state institutions back then to do IQ tests of their uh, subject. Yeah, I, I do believe when it comes to... Uh... The institutions. I think he that I think he did actually uh, have a, a psychological breakdown that he included in his book *Metamorphosis of Criminal* from when he was twelve at Parmadale, with a diagnosis of a, you know sadomasochist. And um, I, I can't remember if they had an IQ listing in there, but I imagine the 1930s they probably didn't have. Or at least a, a form of an IQ test that we still utilize that's you know has the same measure, but uh, but yeah, I mean that, that is certainly an almost genius level. Now, for my dear listeners, I think I need to expand a bit on what prompted the focus on Ed Edwards as a Zodiac suspect. Edwards was a convicted serial killer, and he admitted to and was convicted of. Five murders. The five killings Edwards confessed to were as follows the double murder of Billy Lavaco and Judy Straub in Ohio in 1977, double murder of Tim Hack and Kelly Drew, Wisconsin in 1980, and finally the 1996 murder of his adopted son Danny. Danny Law Glock was a 25-year-old U.S. Army soldier with a history of drifting. In 1995, Edwards and his wife took Danny in and legally adopted him. 
Danny subsequently changed his name to Danny Boy Edwards. Danny wrote in his petition, I have been living with Mr. and Mrs. Edwards for over a year, and I have been supported by them. I call them mom and dad. They treat me like a son. Therefore, I would like to take their surname. In May, five months after changing his name, Danny disappeared. His remains were discovered in April of 1997, less than a mile from the Edwards home. He'd been shot twice in the face and buried in a shallow grave. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all have our burdens to bear, dear listener. And as a man, I was and am often told to suck it up, keep calm, and carry on. Normally, good advice in many situations. But never talking about what bothers you is not healthy. Therapy is great to get things off your chest, to vent, and best of all, to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Everyone needs someone to talk to, even psychopaths, even your humble host. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash serialkiller today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash serialkiller. 2009, 29 years after the Wisconsin double murder, cold case detectives were able to match Edward's DNA to semen found on Kelly Drew's clothing. They arrested Edward at his home in Kentucky and extradited him to Wisconsin. He confessed to shooting Billy Lavaco and Judy Straub and to killing Danny in order to profit from a $250,000 life insurance policy. Edward said in a taped interview, I did it. It didn't bother me and I moved on. That's all. That's all I killed. This last statement, pause, is in direct conflict to what John Cameron says. Cameron claims to have records, pictures of him from all over the country. Cameron also points to Edward's book that documents everywhere he was until 1972. He claims that everywhere he wrote about in the book, Edward's killed, set people up. Edward's wasn't apprehended until 2009. Cameron thinks Edward's killed every moment of his life. 
So, Wayne, what do you think of Cameron's conclusions regarding Edwards? Well, I think when it comes to John Cameron's conclusions, John is certainly a very, very talented detective. But not everyone is right about everything. You know, and there, there are certainly some of the theories of John that they are uh, they're a little uh, fantastic, a little hard to believe. And you know, with proper looking into Ed, you know, with not looking at the cover and just reading the book, it's it's something that deserves the attention. You know, it's it's something that that does make sense for a few of the, the things. But I believe with just like any other theory. Not all the details can be right, and I'm not based on off of the the uh, skills or intelligence of John. I'm based on off of the skills and intelligence of Ed. He was a con man. He was a professional con man, posed as many things throughout his life, and I can certainly see him conning, you know, John, you know, trying to lead him on because they they wrote each other for over a year, and that's what I refer to John as is one of Ed's last victims. But we're not going to know the whole truth in the situation with Ed because that's something that Ed controlled. And just like how he stopped talking after he confessed to uh, enough murders to qualify himself for the death penalty. I mean, the man didn't want to live his life in prison the rest of his life, you know. That's why he wrote authorities reaching out to district attorneys in different states and one of them saying, you're going to want to put a needle in my arm once you hear what I have to say. I mean, he wouldn't feel bad. He wasn't trying to make amends by, like, oh, well, I might as well confess to these murders so that way I can get my death penalty and get sent where I need to go. He, it was his own sick and twisted euthanasia. I mean, it was his way of controlling things because once he confessed to enough murders to qualify himself, he stopped talking because any extra one he would say, it would stay his execution. It would give him time to think and rest and rot in prison. And I, I have to add in something that, uh, thank you for reading Danny's uh, petition. I, I didn't know that existed, and uh, that was really touching to, because the case of Danny is something that's very, very close to me because I mean, he was essentially my foster. You know, he, he's essentially a, like a step-uncle to me, you know, and, and it completely breaks my heart to think that Ed was that cold-blooded and calculated that he would do this and and something that was very painful at least for my father to hear is uh we had found out like through a, a letter that was sent to ed that we got our hands on through john that uh ed actually did try looking for my father and uh in the letter that was to him it's like hey we're sorry mr edwards we could not find records of uh, edward Wayne edwards jr because my my grandmother when she remarried she had his name changed and the birth certificate amended with Charles Wolf, or, you know, with uh, Clarence Wolf, and uh, so my father was then Wayne Wolf. In 1995, he had this letter saying, "We're sorry, Mr. Edwards, we cannot find your son, Edward Wayne Edwards Jr." And then in 1996, you know, he he kills Danny Boy, and I couldn't help but think if he was trying to find my father, you know, to sort of finally stick it to my grandma, like you know, fulfill a promise he made about hurting my dad and gave up and said, okay, well, I guess I'll just have to fill in the blank and adopt this poor child, you know, Danny Glockner. 
And that's the thing that breaks my heart with Danny is he was he never had love. He never had family the way that he was shown with with Kay and Ed. And with Kay, it probably certainly was very legitimate because Kay was a victim of Ed's as well. But with Ed, it was legitimate. It was legitimately a, a terrible situation because he brought this kid into his life so we can kill him. And as a result of not having a rest, you know, not having justice done to him or done for him, it says on this tombstone, Danny Boy Edwards. And it, it's terrible to think that so many years had gone by with this poor boy buried in a, a cemetery with no one he knows, no family, with the name of the man who killed him as a stamp on the, the tombstone above. It, it broke my heart, actually. And it's still the one thing that, to this day, like, like I have a hard time seeing the, like, uh, like happy photos of people he killed, and then I have a hard time seeing a photo of Danny with uh, the American flag behind him and looking at his little tiny headstone with no details on it, not even a date or a specific date, just a, a range of when he may have died. It says Danny Boy Edwards on his tombstone. In fact, one thing that I would love to add in, I'm actually, I started GoFundMe to get Danny a new headstone, a Danny headstone that says Daniel Law Glockner, the name that he was born with, not the name that he was plotted to, to destroy him. So I would appreciate if people did look for that GoFundMe just so we can get Danny a headstone. Because it's something that's the least, it's, it's literally the least I could do for the poor boy. Do you have uh, the address for that GoFundMe? Yeah, it's GoFundMe.com slash GoFundDanny. It's D-A-N-N-I-E. It's also on my Twitter as well. Well, dear listeners, you know what to do. Go to the GoFundMe you just heard about and donate. John Cameron claims with absolute certainty that Edwards is the Zodiac Killer. After watching the documentary series, I gotta say I am not completely sold on that. But I do think it's very fascinating and awesome. Edwards was in his mid-30s in the late 1960s and basically somewhat similar to the Phantom drawing based on two independent witness descriptions. He is a known serial killer, so we know he's very much capable of murder, and he had a penchant for games, haunting authorities. For example, the book he wrote, which is apparently full of implications and window, but few real admissions and art. So, Wayne, do you think Ed Edwards was the Zodiac Killer? I do. Why? Well... I look at a few things. I, I told myself when I, I did this show, I would look at just the facts because that's something that I I can't deny is the, the facts. And you look at the case of, okay, well, I would say look at it like this. My grandfather's in town in Great Falls, Montana in 55 for a very short time. That's when a couple gets shot, a couple in Lover's Lane. He, uh, he goes into prison for armed robbery. When he gets out of prison from Deer Lodge Prison, he is then in Oregon, paroled to Portland, and another couple gets killed on the Lover's Lane. Except this time, 
this couple, the girl, she was said from a, from statements from her friends to have been seeing a recently released convict behind the her back, back of her boyfriend. And uh, my grandfather, he's at the scene of the crime. He spotted at the scene of the crime. The bolt hole in his arm. And there's a bolt hole in the windshield of their car. But they're, the victims, they weren't shot. They were stabbed, which means that there was a tussle of some kind. And when Ed was picked up, they asked him, hey, um, what's wrong with your arm there? And uh, I believe in his words, he said something along the lines of, uh, he got a tussle with an axe. And uh, they're going to process him over, you know, on Monday. And over the, over the weekend, someone called in, pretend to be Ed's parole officer. And uh, he walked out of the jail. He just walked right on out. And something I must add in, because I know we didn't have many details about that in the episode. Uh, the other person that Ed was with, he was uh, in the Navy. His name is Wayne Budd, B-U-D-D-E, I think it was, or Buddy, Wayne Buddy. And uh, Wayne Buddy um, was also sought for questioning with you know, this, uh, this couple that were killed. And he actually ended up dead himself. He had apparently had committed suicide and uh the along the Oregon coast in that very small town in between uh Portland, Oregon and Astoria, Oregon. Which interesting enough, I've actually lived in Astoria, Oregon and so just small world with that. But uh so this he gets killed as well. So then at that point, Ed goes back into jail, you know, on and off multiple times and then lands in California. And then Couple gets killed on Lover's Land. And then a couple gets attacked by a lake. But the boyfriend survives. And boyfriend, he, he mentions that the Zodiac said that he had been in Deer Lodge Prison, which is to recap prison that Ed was in. Now, at this point, the uh, Zodiac has been sending letters and all this stuff. Then all of a sudden, a cab driver gets murdered in San Francisco. And the cab driver was murdered by the Zodiac, you know, because the Zodiac had taken a piece of cloth from his shirt and mailed it to the press, saying, hey, guys, you know, guess who's in town, you know. And uh, something that I definitely thought was very interesting, caught one of those really weird coincidences that we talked about earlier, but you know, it just so happened, you know, my grandfather, he was in California at the time, and he was staying with his family and Paul Drexler, I'm sorry, Paul Drexler, Paul Stein. We know where he picked up the Zodiac from because he wrote in his log. And then obviously we know where he died because that's where they found the cab and they heard the gunshot. So Paul Stein, he picked up the Zodiac from the bar that my grandfather's aunt and cousin worked at. And it's left to duels. And I thought that has got to be the weirdest coincidence if not a coincidence, then anything, because, you know, Ed was a con man. He didn't have a lot of money. And if he wanted to hang out with people, especially he hang out at a bar that his family works at, because, I mean, that's where he get free drinks. And then uh, Paul Stein, he was killed right near where Ed was living with his aunt and, co- and cousin in Presidio Heights. He lived in the area. So, you now recapping, Zodiac was in the same prison. Edward Edwards is 13 characters, which would you know match up with uh, the My Name Is letter. Uh, in the sense that you know it's the same amount of characters. Ed was convicted for the same murders as uh, the Zodiac, and to add into that, he was suspected 
of the same murders before the Zodiac even happened by 10 years. And he just happens to a family that works at this bar. And to me, that was just a lot of, like, almost smoking guns. And when you have enough of these repeated incidents like that, it's no longer just circumstantial. It's, you know, it could be considered something that's like part of a scientific method of discovering something. It's like a spider web. But um, another interesting thing I, I recently thought about was uh, I was talking with John Cameron recently about Zodiac stuff. And uh, I had noticed if you look at the, uh, the uh, sketch of uh, what the kids said the Zodiac looked like, right? See the pair of glasses that's on the Zodiac's face. I was wondering if when uh, Paul Stein, when he was killed, if they recovered his glasses. Because in his photo, his cab driver photo, he had a very, uh, very specific style of frames. And if you look at the sketch of uh, the Zodiac as described by the children and by the officers, looks like he's wearing Paul Stein's glasses. And all I can imagine with that is when, when he pulls the trigger and pops Paul and he goes in the front, he picks up Paul's glasses and puts them on his face. Because that's, you know, just an extra piece of disguise for getting away. And then I was looking at a photo of my grandfather from 1970 with his family in California there. And I thought, well, you know what? If he's someone to just pick up a pair of glasses, you know, that's obviously a go-to disguise for him because it's a really fast one and an easy one. And uh, in the photo, his family, his uncle, or his step-uncle is in front of him that he has his arm on. He has identical style frame glasses from the the sketch as described by the survivor of the stabbing by the side of the lake. And I thought, you know, this is probably someone that he probably picked up his his uncle's glasses, you know, if that was him, that's that is the case. But I just thought that was very fascinating. But so I look at all of that and I, I can't help but think that there's some connection with that. And and uh it wasn't just me that, you know, that thinks that uh He's the Zodiac, and I mean, it wasn't even my theory in the first place. And it is a shared theory, I want to say. Like, funny enough, um, I mean, obviously, you probably follow with uh, what's happening with the Golden State Killer, yeah? Yes. I don't know if you know this, but uh, so Michelle McNamara, I hope I say her name right. I'm always so bad with pronunciation. She, um, you know, when, when they announced that they had uh, found the, the Golden State Killer, Twitter exploded because people out of respect for Michelle, they were sending off all of these different um, things. And one of them specifically was uh, her letter to the open letter to the Golden State Killer, which you may have heard uh, or read or seen Patton Oswalt read on uh, Seth Meyers. But uh, it's one of the last things she wrote. It was a letter to uh, Golden State Killer for eventually when he's going to be found. And she actually mentions my grandfather in that. So it was just really weird to see my grandfather's name popping up in a different sense. This is another, another you know, killer. And uh, with that, I did some research on Michelle. And something I couldn't find, just like Google, but I actually found it in her, her website. She had a blog posting on uh, her website, truecrimediary.com, from uh, 8709, uh, which would be right after, right after, like a, less than a month after my grandfather was arrested originally in 2009. And there was a little, it was details on, on Ed talking about the crimes. And 
she couldn't help but notice and talk about the similarities of her of him with the Zodiac killer. So I was sort of like taken aback that less than a month after my grandfather was arrested for this, you know, she has this posting on her site where she's talking about the Zodiac killer and like uh, comparing the two because of the victim styles and something that she also mentions in that posting that at the very end is uh, Ed's DNA should be tested against the Zodiacs. And it's so weird that after her death, she contributed so heavily to the capture of the, the Golden State Killer. You know, that would happen. And then just weeks later, the Philadelphia Police Department, they're releasing the DNA they think they have via the postage stamps. You know, so is it going to match with my grandfather? I don't know. I know my grandfather, he definitely, he dictated a lot, like decay. And I would imagine just like someone who's working in an office or something, his, maybe like his secretary that would do that kind of thing. So I don't know if I would match with it, but maybe his other kids would with Kay. But I just wanted to add that extra detail in there. I thought it was fascinating that it's not just John's theory or my, my April's theory that he could have been the Zodiac. It's a shared theory with multiple people, including um historian from San Francisco who he definitely he put my grandfather in the top five in the show. You see, it's cert- most certainly be the most likely of the bunch of names. Who funny enough was listed in the article the the uh, Sacramento Bee just did about how the DNA of the Zodiac should be utilized in the same method that was used by the Golden State Killer. So, yeah, it's a shared theory that someone that caught the original Night Stalker may have a shared theory with the Zodiac Killer. Interesting. Very much so. You uh, pose a convincing case for Ed Edwards as the Zodiac. So, uh, just to get it out of the way, what, if any, other of the uh, more famous killings presented in the documentary, and other than the five murders he confessed to and the Zodiac case, do you think Edwards is responsible for? Well, interesting segue into that. The end cap to the Zodiac. Before the Zodiac killings happened, there was uh, some murders that happened called the uh, and and uh, Goodhart. I remember them from the show. We we uh, detailed, but what I found interesting with that and sort of correlates with my grandfather's training and his intelligence. So one of the things I that we know for a fact happened is, you know, looking at paperwork, we have, uh, there was a lawsuit against my grandfather for a false testimony that he had provided. And on that piece of paper, the false testimony, but the court document that lists him as a witness for the FBI, because he provided a false, false, false testimony against somebody who uh, then they found it had an ironclad alibi. So instead of trying him for those murders, they, uh, what happened, it was, uh, I believe a family of three or four that died in a house fire. And he was a witness to it, and uh, he was speaking against somebody. And he had enough details that showed that he had been there and seen something. Uh, but afterwards, they found out that it was actually uh, the ironclad alibi, so he just gets sued, which I thought was interesting. They didn't try to convict him. But anyway, it says in the paperwork that uh, he was witness for the FBI. So my grandfather was a certified uh, informant with the FBI. And now going into the Goodhart murders that just mentioned, that would be right after my grandfather got out of uh, this year. Is that 
believe was, he was transferred to Lewisburg Federal Penitentiary and paroled in 67, uh, near the end of 67. And then a few months later in, in 1968, uh, a family of six in Goodhart, Michigan were killed in their cottage by Lake Michigan. And uh, it was gruesome. It was terrible. And uh, the, the husband, the father, was said to have been working with a con man of some sorts. And someone sent in something to the newspaper there saying they would give more details if they was to run an ad in the newspaper. And this was in June of 68. And the ad had a very interesting message. It looked like a coded message, something you'd see like maybe someone communicating with uh, someone else in the FBI or something, which could just be gibberish, but you never know with that. But the thing about that message is it's signed Zodius. Not Zodiac, but Zodius. And this found it weird that that would be happening, that that murder would be listed as, or that would be signed to the Zodiac, and then very shortly afterwards in California, where my grandfather then moved to, uh, the Zodiac killings would start. So this is the end cap to the Zodiac stuff there. Uh, the other murders, I believe, that Ed, I think, did, obviously, these are just my opinions. I do believe he did have something to do with at least some of the murders for the uh, Atlanta child killings, or as someone referred to it, the Atlanta nightmare. And even the police themselves said that, I believe it was the statement, they said Wayne Williams didn't, you don't think he killed all these people. But he was just sort of getting railroaded with all that. But uh, my grandfather at the time, you know, he was in the area. And he did have in his possession a Marietta, Georgia police uniform because that was recovered when he burned a house down, when his house burned down. He'd stolen it from his friend who was the chief of police in Atlanta, which there's a photo of him with him. and. He did own a van as well, and there's only one other thought suspect in the, the case against Wayne Williams for the Atlanta child killings. And it was said to be a white man, a uh, white male, very square cut, you know, looking, and it was a, and he had a van, a green van. And Ed had a green van because that is what he details as transporting the bodies of Hack and Drew in September of 1980. I'm sorry, in August of 1980. So um, I certainly believe that he would have something to do with the uh, Atlantic child killings as well. Jimmy Hoffa, you know, who knows with that? Yeah, it's very interesting that he just happened to be, you know, good friends and cellmates with Jimmy Hoffa and uh, or Anthony Provenzano. But I also found it interesting that the key witness to uh, the fight between Jimmy Hoffa and Tony Provenzano, where supposedly Tony says, hey, you know, you're going to get it someday, and I'm going to be the person that gives it to you, to Hoffa. It was uh, my grandfather. You know, he's listed in, you know, a Hoffa book. He was interviewed in Playboy magazine about this. And with that, I thought that was really interesting. It's like, so we're going to trust the word of an absolutely insane, narcissistic, near-IQ-level serial killer that he, that he said that. You, know, you can't really trust anything he says. That's why I don't trust his own book, Metamorphosis of a Criminal. When it comes to Jean Benet, I don't think he killed Jean Benet. And as you can see in our show, my grandfather had an alibi. And yes, full validity of the alibi, we don't know because, I mean, I do believe it came from one of my uncles that uh, refused to be on the show and we can't even say his name with it. And there's definitely more to that. I don't, I don't know. But... Uh, when it comes to Lacey Peterson, I don't think he killed Lacey Peterson. I think that would be one of those situations where, with the theories, it's easy to try to apply 
an algorithm to uh, other situations that John was doing. You know, he's applying the methodology of Ed to other situations, and I just don't see it fitting. And that's where, you know, you can see the conflict between me and John in the show. Is it's easy to try to ignore something that could be evidence against your case, you know, and I felt like that was happening a little bit, which told me that there's blinders put up because I mean, here we were trying to get some answers for, for this and we were starting to find some and I could see John certainly putting those blinders up. And, you know, I do hope that, you know, in the long run, we're going to have some results, but I do also hope that he doesn't find, you know, this, cause this isn't really happening yet, obviously, but I do hope that with an answer, to one of these murders, if it is true that it did kill you know one of these people or one of these situations here, I hope that John doesn't look at that as justification for every other theory and say, okay, well, I guess it, I guess he did kill all these other people then. You know, I just hope that doesn't happen. But um, anyway, when it comes to Teresa Halbach in Wisconsin, it's very interesting. I I don't necessarily, I can't say I, I don't think he did, see that one. I'm still on the fence on because. We couldn't get him in an alibi. We couldn't also disprove he was in there, but we, it's also the similarities are going to eerie because thinking about it is, as John's words, to look through the eyes of the Zodiac killer. It's uh, Teresa Halbach with her murder. Here's someone who's killed by, you know, Stephen Avery, whose name is all over the place. And we do know, and I'm, I'm still trying to find paperwork on this to verify this, but uh, according to one of my aunt's uncles that at the time, Ed did live in the area of Teresa Halbach and Stephen Avery. And I would imagine if it was the Zodiac, you know, if he was the Zodiac officially, here's a man that's obsessed with uh, Paul Avery. You know, he would write with the uh, journalist as played by Robert Downey Jr. and the Zodiac movie, right? Now, with that, if you were someone that was, that was the Zodiac and you were in this area and you see the name Avery everywhere because, you know, it's a small area and every auto salvage is a big company out there. and all of a sudden, named Stephen Avery is everywhere, all over the news, because he was suing the state, and it was like the most talked about thing in the state for quite a while. I could certainly see that being a taunt to uh, the name Avery popping up in a newspaper multiple times for someone like my grandfather. Now, on top of that, anything about the Zodiac with uh, the way he would kill, or at least the way he would like to talk about. And Teresa Hallbach, I mean, she was stabbed, and she was she was tied up, and she was shot. Unfortunately, she went, and she then her remains were destroyed via fire. You know, so you could call it the Zodiac Killer took an uh, interest in Stephen Avery as a disassociation and as a correlation with Paul Avery and setting him up because he knew it would be easy because the police hated him. And he killed Teresa Hallback by rope, by fire, by knife, and by gun, and she went missing on Halloween. That certainly sounds like the Zodiac to me. Now, yes, that is just looking at the evidence in a certain way, but that's sometimes how things would get solved. But with um. With all of that, though, one thing I do find fascinating with at least that case, and this is stuff that could be made available via uh, Freedom of Information Act, if there is a letter sent in to the police there talking about how her body would be found, remains would be found in the smelter, and we were looking into that and investigating it. And with that, we actually um, I found it interesting that the, the police report that was um, put in there saying that someone had heard a loud whooshing sound that night, and John theorized it could have been the uh, fire from the smelter that was used to burn Teresa Hallbeck's body that we didn't know about. So we went and spoke with the 
uh, the person who put this police report in, and he didn't put, he didn't remember any of these details in this police report. He didn't put them in there. So we were asking very clearly, so, okay, so like this police report, these are the details of it, and he was denying it. He was denying that it was his details. So you know, obviously I would definitely say it needs more investigating, but it seems with that, you know, there's the idea that that could be a falsified police report against Stephen Avery because that was the one that a phone call made by this person was the one that led to police entering his property. And uh, I found that, that interesting that we've discovered that detail while researching my grandfather. And one extra detail I can put in there too when it comes to uh, Jean Benet Ramsey is, uh, you know, we were looking at the DNA that was found on her, on her corpse, on her vagina. And because that DNA hadn't been tested in years, I believe like 25, almost 20 years since they had tested that DNA. And, uh, you know, when she was killed, that DNA was listed, was corrupted, so there's nothing to be done with it. But with testing it again, the person that we used to test it, you know, he teaches classes on DNA at Stanford. And I do believe he had done testing in the original case 25 years ago. He actually said, well, the, the instrumentation and the tools and technology have got a little more finite. And they could actually say, it's not just the DNA was corrupted. It's the DNA is corrupted because it's a mixture of two people's DNA. Both male, neither of which related to her. And I can't help but think, like, how would DNA get in that place on uh, Jean Benet and be a combination of two people's DNA, neither related, both male? So maybe uh, the person that collected the DNA and corrupted it with uh, his own, but there would still be a male that would not be related to Jean Benet, which, through the laws of our country, would essentially, our federal justice system, instantly clears the name of Burke Ramsey or, or, uh, or her parents. So find some interesting things while doing these investigations. Yeah, so to recap, I, I do think he did the, uh, the Goodhart murders. I do think it would be possible for him to do Jimmy Hoffa, although unlikely. I do think it would be possible for him to kill Teresa Halbach, but we can't say that yet because you know, her, her family deserves more respect to that than to say that Ed did it because we don't have the evidence that he did. We have a theory, and we can't disprove that Ed did. And uh, I don't believe he killed um, – let's see here. Who else? We went through a lot of murders, didn't we? <laughs> Um, you um, yeah. you mentioned that you don't think he killed John Bonet, and you do think he killed at least some of the Atlanta killings. Yeah, because I mean he was in the area. I don't think he killed uh, Lacey Peterson or her unborn son Connor. Now, there's definitely more kills, murders out there that need to be looked into. But uh, one extra thought, because I'm so good at these tangents and taking up extra time. The, the idea of the untraceable serial killer, I mean, that's probably one of the big things that kind of shoots down a lot of the stuff with Ed that makes people sort of laugh at it. You know, look at what just happened with uh, the original Night Stalker. And with that, I mean, there's now another, another grandchild of a serial killer out there, or another child. So, and unfortunately to say, I kind of feel like this can be happening again soon. I feel like because DNA is finally getting caught up with uh, the processing in uh, uh, cold cases, you know, we're going to start to see more and more instances of a serial killer in his 60s or 70s because they're such good chameleons that they did not meet the you know, regular methodology. Like most serial killers, they kill in, in their rituals, not just because of an obsession or uh, pleasure, but because they were successful. It's like, oh, this way works. I better do this way again. And they would keep doing that. And they weren't smart enough to 
change things up and they would get caught eventually. That's where people like my grandfather, who had training, and if he wasn't FBI informant, he probably had some cursory training with the FBI. FBI, you know, because he had, he got permission to write his book via J. Edgar Hoover before he died, about six months before he died. So that's not a name you just drop, you know. <laughs> so people like my grandfather who had training, who are smart enough to not have to do the same thing ritualistically, they're people that can just look at their own kills as the only recognition they need is they know they did it. They don't care if anyone else knows. So unfortunately, I think we're going to start seeing more of these people popping out of the woodwork. We're going to start seeing other 60-year-old serial killers getting caught. But at least the um, this very small club I'm in where being a descendant of a uh, of serial killer is not going to be as lonely as, as it has been because more people are joining that club, unfortunately. Thank you so much for that very fascinating insight into the possible crimes at Unfortunately, we are out of time. So, Wayne, I would like to say thank you so much for coming on the show. I hope you found it interesting and that you feel that you had your say. And uh, I wish you a very good day. Yeah, thank you very much for having me on your show. Um, I did like it. I, I like the way you go about the um, the details and if you ever want to have me back for anything in the future, just to have the insight of someone who's been uh, through what I have been through, or just a different look on something for a different case, by all means, reach out. I will do that. I have been your host, Thomas Vaborg Thune. Doing this podcast is a labor of love. Also, this podcast has been able to bring serial killer stories to life, thanks to you, their listener and especially those of you that support me via Patreon. You can do so at theserialkillerpodcast.com slash donate. There are especially a few patrons that have stayed loyal for a long time. Maud, Sydney, Lexi, Christina, Philip, Jason, Kelly, Elizabeth, Nick, Sid and Meg, Sarah, Tommy, Charlotte, and Craig. Your monthly contributions really help keep this podcast thriving. You have my deepest gratitude. As always, thank you, dear listener, for listening. And feel free to leave a review on your favorite podcast app or website. And please do subscribe to the show if you enjoy it. Thank you. Good night and good luck.